Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Dr. Hannah Shows, PhD, Merida in the Reinvented Magazine Princesses with Power Tools Calendar 2023, and artificial intelligence specialist, among many other things. Hannah has firsthand research experience studying various computer engineering applications in medicine. She has worked with technologies such as computational modeling and simulation, AI, and blockchain. Hannah holds a PhD in biomedical sciences from Wright State University, as well as degrees in both biochemistry and mathematics from the University of Iowa. She has published articles in leading academic journals, presented her work at several international conferences, and is a contributing author to academic textbooks in pharmacology and toxicology. In her free time, Hannah engages in advocacy work for inclusivity in STEM with a special focus on gender equity and disability activism. She volunteers as a math educator and is widely recognized for her online presence as a voice for creating accessible math. And of course, Hannah is here as part of our partnership with Reinvented Magazine, as one of the princesses in the Reinvented Magazine, Princesses with Power Tools Calendar for 2023. Welcome to the Hazard Girls Podcast, Hannah. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we have a ton to talk about, considering the talking points you gave me. Some of these topics are right up our alley, so I'm very excited to get into them. But I do want to start with your own background. You've got two degrees in STEM fields, biochemistry and mathematics, and you've got your PhD in biomedical sciences. So if you could start by telling us what brought you into these fields, was it, was it just that this is where your interests took you? Yeah, um, the math is a bit of a funny story. So biochemistry was a little bit more natural. Um, I was really interested in medicine when I was younger. And I learned, you know, in college that that was kind of the route to go. I went into college as somebody who hated math, a very classic math anxiety, bad experience um, with math student. And for my degree, there was an option to take a more difficult math class or an easier math class. And I thought of my 10th grade geometry teacher who has gotten more shout outs in my life that I don't think he ever expected when he told me that he was going to place me in remedial math as a favor to me because I was never going to be using math in my life. That was clear to him. So he was going to take me out as a kindness. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And you could tell that he genuinely felt like he was treating me with empathy in that situation. And so when I got to college, being the spiteful person that I am, when I saw that I could take the harder math class, I said, I'm taking the harder math class just to prove that I'm not stupid and I can do math and I can learn it. And then after this class, what I thought was, I never have to do math again. I'm just going to prove it to myself and then I'll move on with my life. And in that calculus course, that's how I found out that I actually really love math. And I saw it being taught from a different perspective. 
um, with a more open and accessible and diverse teaching style. And I didn't just fall in love with studying math and pursue it for a degree. I also fell in love with the idea of math education and how we can be more effective in making it feel um, fun and usable and relevant for students because that's that's so rare to see, I think. The service that teacher was doing, not just to you, but probably to other students as well. Did you ever, did you ever go back to the school and talk to them about it? Yes, I did. And um, unfortunately, it was uh, kind of a letdown and underwhelming experience, which I think many women um, can probably relate to if they've ever gone back to that person or any, you know, marginalized, non-stereotypical STEM student. I'm, I've heard lots of other people share similar stories of going back and telling the people that told them that they couldn't that, you know, hey, I did that. And they just say, oh, that's nice. Okay. So, you know, I've, <laughs> I've since then, I've been trying to focus on the forward and the now and what I can change and, and other educators. And yeah, I know, but you, you, I know what you mean though, because you do want to stop it from happening to other people. And if that person is still teaching, it makes you want to get in there. And, but, but you can't, I mean, there are other ways to do it. Like what you're doing is moving forward and sharing the positive aspects of math and the fun aspects of math and probably reaching a huge audience doing that in your own way. So in, in your own way, you are correcting the problem. It's just moving it forward instead of backwards. So, okay, well, that's a really interesting story. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, now that was during college. So you were learning, a, you, you were majoring in math and learning how much you loved it. How how did you come to work at a law firm? So that is uh, another kind of funny story that I didn't see coming. Nobody else saw coming. Um, during my PhD, I was working primarily as a programmer. I thought that that was the role that I was going to take for the rest of my life. And I realized towards the end of my degree, as I'm looking and trying to decide what I wanted to do next, that... Um, the things that I was enjoying the most about my work were the communication aspects. I was working, um, so in the biomedical sphere, particularly with engineering, there's a lot of collaboration. So I was working with the computer people and we had collaborators on the clinical side and in biology labs. And there are huge communication barriers for those collaborations. And in particular, those communication and liaison roles tend to fall on women because they're the ones who are most willing to um, navigate those teamwork environments very frequently. And so I found myself, rather than dreading at first those conversations of having to talk to the biologists and get past those barriers of assumptions of what they're assuming about our work, what they think we may be assuming about their work, what we may actually be assuming about their work. And rather than being the per the no person, because that's often what this is, the computer scientist saying, you collected your data wrong and we can't do anything with that. No, we can't give you that information. No, that's not what that means. I got really, really enthusiastic about how do I make these conversations um, more of an open channel, friendlier, established respect and trust. I loved that. I loved making presentations with the focus of, um, I want my dad to be able to understand this. So he's always loved looking at 
my my presentations and seeing my talks. And that was kind of in the back of my mind of, I need to make sure that it's technical enough for the audience, but that it's still accessible. And I loved that so much that I thought, maybe I should look for a role in communication. And then I was scouted by um, the firm that I'm with now. And it is, it's exactly that. My job is to talk to engineers and help them figure out the best way to communicate their work so that anyone can understand how cool it is and why it's important and why it matters and making sure that that communication stays open and accessible. So I'm really glad that I made that transition. Now you work for a law firm, so I'm sure there's a lot of confidentiality in place that you you can't probably share a lot, but are there any uh, examples you're able to share that are out in the public realm of something you've worked on? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I won't name any clients in particular, um, but I do quite a bit of work with larger biotech companies that do um, the development of new tests, particularly for uh, like genetic testing and identification of mutations that may be related to rare diseases. There's a lot of computational work that goes into that with new algorithms, especially AI and personalized medicine. But the cool thing about law, and uh, maybe you had a similar experience with your legal work, is I find that no two cases are, are the same. I do one thing and it'll be genetics. And then my next client will be a video game company. And then my next client will be um, a smart beauty tech company. And so I get everything from working with these female CEOs of their startups to um, working sometimes with engineers that, especially in, let's say, the video game industry that are less used to discussing math and engineering with a woman. And those can actually be really fun partnerships because I can see the, the moment that the wheels start turning in their brain of, oh, she actually, she does understand this and, and she thinks that it's cool and she appreciates that. And I see them kind of lower their wall a little bit as they talk to me about their work. And so I feel like I'm both... Um, a tourist of technology and in a way a bit of an ambassador for non-traditional um, engineers since I'm meeting with all of these different people that are very rarely expecting to see a younger woman in the meeting. It seems like you've embraced that and you're okay with it. You're okay with sharing that and it's something that you actually enjoy. Yeah, um, I I think that to some extent embracing it is often the only option if you don't want to um, destroy your mental health. <laughs> I could see that. Now, what is your ultimate career goal? Is this, because I know you love your work. You've just described that you're sort of doing what almost like what you are what cut out to do and you're enjoying it and it's challenging and you're helping people. And you get to meet all of these interesting clients. Um, do you, is this the type of work you think you'll always be doing? Or do you have an ultimate career goal that's um, beyond that? So I do plan on staying in the IP law world. Um, I hope that 
for as much of my career as possible, I am still in some capacity involved in the patent drafting process because it is just so much fun. Almost everyone I know that that does it, we're a bunch of nerds and I'll say to my managing partner, sometimes I can't believe I get to do this for a job. And he says, I know, right? Um, but that being said, I would eventually like to switch eventually into more of a, a policy and advocacy role because patent law, it's sort of two sides of the, the same uh, coin when it comes to protections. There's a lot of really, really good things about IP protections that help the advancement of science and technology and help companies get started and protect their work. But there are also some ethical concerns that come with it as well that, um, you know, a lot of companies can sometimes abuse. Everyone, I think, has heard of the cases of, of drugs being patented or cancer genes being patented and, and protected. And, and those are areas that I feel particularly passionate about because it's a field that has so much potential to do so much good work for communication. And I would love to be part of the change, um, allowing that aspect to expand and minimizing some of the uh, ethical concerns that inherently come up in you know, a capitalist society when you're trying to do science. Yeah. Well, speaking of advocacy work, there are other areas of advocacy work that you're interested in besides uh, the technical that you just mentioned. Um, and that is your abilities and your love of being a science communicator. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your Instagram? Is it your Instagram page or your, your yes. social media platforms? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm primarily active on Instagram and it actually started as a bit of an accident finding this really powerful um, science communication and women in STEM field community. Um, I it was it started as just my personal page. I have a lot of friends who very intentionally and strategically started science communication pages and I I did not. Um, the the honest truth is that I am just a really big math nerd and I love talking about math and it's it's funny because, Math is, I think, one of the very few fields where people feel confident letting a lot of anger out on you when they when they hear what you do. If if you say, "Oh, I'm I'm a chemist," that's something that is hard for a lot of people that um, they may feel intimidated by. But the answer there tends to be, "Oh, that's really cool. How'd you get into that?" When I say I do math and I love math. I get very strong reactions. I hear a lot about people's bad experiences with fractions. I've had people come up to me in grocery stores about I have math tattooed on my arms and I've had strangers come up to me and tell me about their elementary school teacher who, it, you know, humiliated them in front of a class. Yeah. People feel so strongly about it. And so I started talking more and more about how I, I firmly believe that everyone can do math and everyone does do math. I don't believe in people who are bad at math. And I found all these other people that were talking about their PhD experiences or their experiences in tech, running a startup in law and medicine, especially connecting with other women. Um, the work that I did my dissertation on the very first time I met another woman doing the same thing in the same field, it was through Instagram. 
I never met another woman at a conference um, in my own university. It was through Instagram. And I got a lot of really good feedback from people saying, you know, I've, I've always been so scared of this topic and now I'm seeing it differently. And so I do some work talking about the gendered aspect of it and other um, biases and discriminations that make certain cohorts more likely to feel um, a lack of confidence in their ability than others. So most of my material isn't necessarily targeted at people who have always been told that they can do anything that they want to do. But I do try to keep it um, more general and, and friendly, just throwing in little stories about, about where, you know, fractions come up in your life and, and things like that. But from the, the representation standpoint, I think that it's really important that when people read that information, the face that they see isn't just a woman, it's a woman who isn't um, what they view or what they would think of as a scientist. I don't try to, you know, put on suits and, and post headshots. It's me, who I am as a person in my normal life, doing normal things. And that's prompted a lot of really interesting conversations as well. So why do you think it is that people are so feel so visceral about math when they see a fraction? You said you have a tattoo? Mm-hmm. when they yep. see that tattoo in the grocery store or when they see you talking about it online why are why did they feel so strongly about it math for the first time in in people's lives is often um their their first introduction with a feeling of inadequacy or lack of intelligence or competency there's a lot of issues with um the overarching math education system and the way that we tend to do things. And um, a lot of people have experience with bad in, in instruction. And I don't think that that falls on the educators themselves. I think that the educators are in a really hard position of when you are really limited from the state, for instance, what you're allowed to teach, when you have a classroom of students who start off the school year hating you and they don't want to work with you and they don't want to learn and they don't want to open their minds up to it. You get jaded, you get less friendly. Um, not all math teachers are like my geometry teacher who just thought that women couldn't do math. It's usually more subtle than that. And it's more about burnout than an explicit bias. But we have these math experiences where it's really difficult and we don't know why we're learning it and we don't feel like we're getting the mentorship and direction that we deserve. Um, I like to say that math is the only topic where we aren't told why we're learning it. Nobody says you need to read the scarlet letter because when you're 35 years old, you need to remember this exact character and what they said at this time. They teach you, you're reading this book to learn about concepts that you can apply to your life, but we tell kids to memorize the Pythagorean theorem. We don't say, if you take calculus, you are going to be a better driver because you need to be able to tell rates of change over time. And so you're using your social media platforms to sort of share some of this information, have those discussions with people, create community. Can we use social media to organize 
as a as a community to help make change in these areas? Oh, absolutely, we can, um, especially from the standpoint of representation. When you look at the science communities on social media, there are lots of little niches. There's women in STEM. There's you know black students in STEM. Um, disabled in STEM, queer in STEM. And my story that I mentioned of the first time I met another woman doing molecular dynamics research, it was through Instagram. So many students have that experience and it can be really difficult when you're facing a system that you know is not fair and you are experiencing all of these microaggressions and you're being gaslit constantly about whether or not that is or is not happening, or if you are or are not allowed to feel mad about it, when you're the only one or one of very few people in your space um, experiencing that, it's really difficult to feel confident um, handling that situation. But when you have a community behind you and you have a support system, that becomes a very different um, a different ball game. And and I know that for those who, who aren't in STEM, it, it helps too because there are people who may have never seen um, Black women in tenure-track positions. And they see that on Instagram and it changes their perception. It, it helps everybody. One of the things you mentioned in your talking points before the show, you know, you sent us a few issues that you are passionate about and like talking about. And all of these are great topics and I wish we could reach every single one. But one of the things you mentioned reminds me, of, it's related to what you just said, um, you talked about strategies for converting bystanders into allies. And I think you're talking about the tech space and maybe like the works, the workplace as well. But um, what I thought of when I read this talking point is my conversations with um, other people on the podcast, like Ali, the engineer, who's not your average engineer on um, Instagram, and also Christina Mahler of Crew Collab, how we were talking about how you know, how important it is for men and others when they see something going down on social media um, or really anywhere to not just pull you aside privately to talk to you about how they support you because that's very nice and everything, but it's not always very helpful, um, but to, to really address it in a public way. And I would like to know your opinion on this and what some of those strategies might be for converting bystanders such as these people into actual allies that are helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the way that that you phrased that. Um, I think that that really succinctly shows the the issue. And I love that you specifically mentioned not just pulling us aside because um, a lot of the topics that that I mentioned they kind of overlap in the same way for me as far as the really complicated social arena that you're entering when you go into these tech spaces, because it's not just um, the, the simple story of sexism that sometimes people boil it down to of, oh, women aren't usually here and now they are and people don't like change and that's all there is to it because it's not that simple. Um, and so one one story that, that I point out that I think very succinctly describes some of these things um, is Legally Blonde and Elle Woods, right? She's our um, fantastic role model for so many of these things. And you see that Elle is criticized and discriminated against and biased 
against for all of these things about her personality. And while there are many people uh, at Harvard in that movie that actively do have an issue with her or um, are aggressive towards her, there are also characters that may not have done something themselves, but they aren't saying anything because of the fear of social rejection themselves. And you see in tech spaces, um, there are people who come from uh, backgrounds or have personality types that very likely have experienced social rejection in the past. And this may be the first time in their entire lives they've been part of the us rather than the them. So you have, certainly you have the bullies, but then you also have men that, um, for example, when we're talking in the gendered space, you have men who see it happening and they don't necessarily have a problem with you being there as a woman, but you're the one being bullied now. And if they stand up for you, then they might get bullied. And it's difficult and painful and scary, depending on where you're at in your own emotional maturity and mental health process to risk giving that perspective um, up. And so you do have a lot of people that maybe they're not directly saying something to you. Maybe they'll say in private later, hey, I'm really sorry that so-and-so said that to you. And I think that those are the people that are more worth focusing my energy on. I'm at this point in my life, I'm no longer sitting down with men telling me that I'm too dumb to code. I'm not doing it. It's a waste of my time. But those people who are more likely to pull me aside, those are the people that I can have a conversation with. And I try really hard when I have the bandwidth to do so to give them the benefit of the doubt that they probably aren't actually noticing it. These things that they've never experienced, like being spoken over in a meeting or being asked to refill the water in the Keurig in the office every single day, um, they may not realize it for what it is. And those are the people that I like to sit down and just have conversations with one-on-one -on -one and say, you know, have you been in that position before where it feels like nobody is noticing um, the the way that you're being treated? And, and if that happens, I'd like to be there for you. Would you be willing to be there for me in that way? And when you approach it human to human, it tends to go better, regardless of whether or not you're viewing it as an ethical strategy or just as a debate strategy. I mean, that's how you that's how you connect to people. That's how you get them to see different perspectives. So one by one, you know, approaching people in the workplace and convincing them to what actually speak up for for you when something is happening, or how do you suggest they put a stop to the behavior that they're witnessing? Yeah, I guess approaching one on one and informing friendships, because as I mentioned, I think that some of the fear of saying th something comes from this idea of. I've been ostracized my entire life and now I have all these people that that like me and I feel like they're my friends. And if I call them out on their behavior, then I'm just going to go right back to where I started. And the, the antidote to that, in my opinion, is um, showing them that there is a support system with better people that are kinder and more empathetic. And why would you want the support of these people that, um, 
maybe are less kind or understanding or going to enforce toxic masculine restrictions on you compared to people that, um, that want it to be a healthier workplace. And so I usually try to find the people um, back when I was still working in, in programming environments, find the guys that maybe just aren't saying anything at all. And I start by just, I say, hi, I ask them about their day. I try to remember things about them. And as soon as I feel like we've established a friendship, I'll start pointing out, you know, it really hurt my feelings when so-and-so said this to me in that meeting and and it made me feel really alone. And then that that's a connection point moving forward from there. And they may realize, you know, that's not how I've been made to feel alone in the past. So I didn't think about it. But now that you pointed out, like, that's really not fair. And they're a little more likely to say something than they were before. They're more likely to notice it than they were before. And if we all do this, if we all talk to people on this level, it's more likely to become even more widespread that will develop more allies around us. You've talked about the unique sexual harassment landscape that was that was in quotes, the quote, unique sexual harassment landscape specific to tech spaces. And I think this is pretty well known in feminist circles and just I think among women in general, uh, the, the phrase that I've heard is tech bros, and that's not a compliment, it's not meant as a compliment. So why is the tech space so notoriously sexist? So um, kind of in the same vein, as I've been mentioning, I think a lot of it comes from that um, that background. So there are lots of male dominated fields that are um, well known for their for their misogyny. Right. Let's look at finance and the finance bros as um a comparison. So if we juxtapose the the tech bros and the finance bros, the finance bros tend to be privileged people with um, positive social backgrounds who have very frequently always been in a position of power, who have been considered, um, you know, great examples of masculinity and that toxic masculine mindset. And so that sexism is a form of maintaining a power structure that has always existed for them. It's not taking something back. It's just maintaining their status quo. When you look at the people who go into tech by the nature of the work, it tends to attract a lot of um, introverted individuals, individuals that have maybe not meshed with um, with social norms and expectations, have been rejected by other men because of toxic masculine standards. And there is so much trauma that comes from that. And to be clear, that's a trauma that they have an obligation themselves to work through, just as we all do. That's not by any means an excuse or a reason to treat other people poorly. And it's something that we all can recognize in day-to-day life as the concept of um, rejection violence, this idea of um, when men feel rejected or turned down or um, not valued enough by women, they can get these very misogynistic, violent, aggressive, hostile standpoints. And that gets carried into the workplace as well. And so if you have someone that's experienced that type of social trauma, that they haven't been willing to process and and work through in a healthy way, and you combine that with now I'm the one in power, now I'm the one in the majority, everyone here looks like me, everyone here has the same experiences as me, they talk like me, they think like me. And then you come in here, 
And not only are you the minority now, when, when I walk into a programming space, not just as a woman, but as a woman that falls into a lot of societal, like feminine um, behaviors, as far as the way that I dress, I like fashion, I like makeup, I have a vocal fry that I refuse to not have. Um, <laughs> they They see me not just as one woman, they see me as this representation of all of the women who have made, you know, him feel bad before. And, and he assumes this, you know, imaginary misogynist that, that I've made up for this scenario. He assumes that, that I also have made men like him feel bad. And I've always been included and it must have been so easy for me. And in this story that he's making up in his head, he resents me for it. And so you have both the people who view it like a revenge thing, like, you know, you quote unquote, you, you people treated me so badly my entire life, but in here, you don't get to have that power over me and I'm going to punish you for it. And then you also have the people who may not be as aggressive with that rejection violence, but they're still the bystanders of maybe they don't hate me for being in that space, but they also probably don't care about me or value me enough to risk um, losing their own social comfort for my sake. You talked about something um, in the, in the show notes, unlearning gender code switching in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, so it ties into the concepts of, you know, internalized misogyny and and I always like to tie it back to things that people who aren't in tech may have witnessed so that they can picture exactly what I'm talking about this idea of um we tend to respect women more uh when it's uh we we tend to respect women more um as a culture overall as a society when they're quote unquote tomboys, not like other girls, you know, girls who eat like a man, drink like a man, you know, say that they don't like other girls drama. And it's this way that we we pin women against each other to to reject femininity. And it's all a control structure, right? And it's the same thing that we see in the workplace, the way that we um, associate certain feminine traits with being less smart or driven or professional. It's a way to silence women. Um, and so it's very easy and a very normal common step for women being put in this environment to try to minimize their femininity as much as possible in the workplace and take that quote unquote, I'm not like other girls mindset and use it in the workplace to find acceptance. So to not showcase their feminine interests, to mirror the behavior and the language of the men that you're working with for their acceptance. And very frequently we find that um, that doesn't work to us at the beginning of that strategy, maybe subconsciously and maybe hopefully we feel like maybe if we engage in these behaviors, then they will accept us. But I think from the perspective of the individuals and the structures um, in power, it was never about us being someone that they thought was worth accepting. It was about keeping us quiet and um, taking up less space, less inconvenient 
And I think that it's a very important part of um, mental health in professional spaces for marginalized communities to realize that no amount of that code switching is ever going to to change that. And so if it's not going to work anyway, why are you putting the effort into it? And I used to do the same exact thing. And finally, one day I just realized, you know, if this is how you're going to view me regardless, why don't I be somebody that I like? If this is how you're going to talk about me anyway, and it has, it hasn't made the harassment any worse. It hasn't made it any scarier, but it has made me feel more secure and safer because it's easier for me to defend myself being who I am and a woman that I know and I recognize rather than somebody that I'm not. That's so beautifully put. And I think it's a perfect segue into talking about the Princesses with Power Tools calendar because, of course, Reinvented Magazine is a magazine all about promoting women and girls in STEM and trades. And and the, the well, the Princesses with Power Tools calendar is featuring these real live scientists, all of whom are um, women or women identifying uh, or non-binary, I believe, uh, people in the science and STEM fields. But the point of the calendar is to show through gorgeous photographs of their real life, but dressed up as a princess, um, that they can be both. They can be themselves if they want to be a feminine princess and be strong and skilled and intelligent, they can. So that's really what the calendar is all about. So I, I really think it's a perfect segue into talking about that. And I would like to know from you, because you are one of the princesses, can you share which princess you are? Yeah, so I chose um, Merida from Brave. Um, I really think that she's a great um, metaphor for women in STEM, uh, for those of you who have not seen Brave, the short version is um, Merida does not want to be a princess that is married off um, as an object. And she also doesn't want to give up her interests just because they're not socially acceptable for women. Merida loves archery. Uh, and she's told that because she's a woman, she should not. Um, she shouldn't want to be an archer. She should want to marry an archer, right? But instead, um, she competes for her own hand against other archers to show that um, she can do what they do. She can do it just as well as they do um, and really stands up to, uh, to that bias. And I think that women in math have a very similar experience of being treated like, well, well why are you here? Shouldn't you be trying to marry a doctor or not? not be here getting your PhD in math or AI or whatever it is. And people treat you like that's such an odd interest to have as a woman. It's not even um, a glorified interest from the perspective of internalized misogyny for, with, you know, toxic masculine and misogynistic cultures. We may reward women for saying that they love football or beer or whiskey. We certainly do not reward them for saying um, that, that they like math, that's still considered this, this sacred topic, this skill that they shouldn't be allowed to have. I can see how that you could relate to that character. And can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the photo shoot? What did, what did you wear? What was the photo shoot like? 
Uh, it was it was so much fun. I actually um, I said to my partner that evening that I felt like my inner child was just, you know, having the time of her life because I, I was that little girl that loved Disney princesses and, and dresses and, and pink. And somewhere along the way, having the interest that I did, I really lost a lot of that personality for a long time because it didn't feel acceptable. And in the last few years, I've been trying to reclaim that part of myself without shame. And so to be given this incredible opportunity that I was so honored to have um, to really kind of pay thanks to that part of myself and, and honor her and celebrate her to get to dress up like a Disney princess and feel like a princess while doing the thing that I love more than anything, which is scribbling math on a whiteboard. It was a, it was a really cool experience. And it's really cool to think about um, girls today having those, uh, those representations that I did not have growing up. I didn't know that you could keep your femininity and still go into those spaces because it, it, it feels when, when you're a kid that if you're going to do those things as a girl, you have to be a tomboy or as a boy, you, you have to fall into those toxic masculine standards. And, and I just think it's really incredible that reinvented is doing something that, that is challenging that rather than the target t-shirts that say, you know, I don't want to be a princess. I want to be a doctor. No, I really think that you can be both hashtag. You can be both movement is the new frontier in spreading awareness to young, to young women about this. Well, now that the calendar is out, because I know it just came out, what has the reaction been like? What have people been saying to you? What is your, what is your law firm think? They love it. Um, it has been surreal, really cool, really validating. Um, I think some of the most special uh, feedback that I've gotten is I've had some, some coworkers, friends, acquaintances tell me that um, they've purchased calendars for their daughters. And, and it's, you know, I appreciate all of the support that, that people are doing of, of buying the calendars just because it's a cause that's meaningful to them or they want to support me. Um, but to hear it put in that context of um, being able to picture that tangible scenario of, of a young girl or a young kid in a classroom, seeing that, um, yeah, I just kind of feel like I'm, I'm doing my inner six-year-old a service. And I'm really okay. grateful that well, Reinvented that, yeah. does this incredible work. Me too. And I can attest to the power of it. I have a nine-year-old girl who has it on her wall. And she has, she has right now it's the 2022 one, but you know, of course we'll have the 2023 ones. Which month are you in the calendar? Which month? December. December. Okay, great. Well, finally, where can our listeners find you, Hannah? What's your Instagram handle and whichever other platforms are your main platforms? Yeah, absolutely. So Instagram is the easiest way. Usually my handle is Dr. Dr. Hannah Willow. Um, my Twitter is Hannah W. Shows. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Hannah W. Shows. Great. Well, Dr. Hannah Shows, PhD, Merida in the Reinvented Magazine Princesses with Power Tools Calendar 2023 and Artificial Intelligence Specialist, among many other things. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. This has been really just an enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for sharing 
all of your wisdom and your journey with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for the the work that that you're doing. It's it's so important and, and necessary. So uh, on behalf of of all of us uh, in in those male dominated spaces, thank you so much. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.